I love dogs. I love dogs, too. Glad we're all on the same page. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to the Sarah Andreco Show. Hey, everyone. It's Sarah. Thanks so much for joining me today. My guest today is Michael Shikashio. He is the past president of the International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants, and he has a plethora of continuing education, should you be interested, that he offers annually via seminars, speaking at universities around the globe, but also through his online platform that you can take virtually at any time. Uh, Michael has a specialty, and that's what we're going to get into today. In particular, it's dealing with aggressive dogs. In fact, that's kind of his niche. So we're going to him on the source for this just to give you some some ideas, some tips, some knowledge and information when it comes to dealing with aggressive dogs, specifically in the veterinary practice more so than anything. But I think that the information provided in this uh, that comes from Michael today will help you in any professional situation when it comes to handling aggressive canines. So Mike, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm looking forward to this. Thanks for having me. I'm I'm so excited to be here. It's going to be great. Yeah. So we're going to talk aggression today, which is your jam, right? Right up your alley. Um, curious, why did you decide to become so niche and work specifically with uh, aggressive dogs? You know, it's it came from when I was doing a lot of fostering of dogs. I used to do a lot of work with rescues and, and different shelters and things and foster a lot of dogs. And when you start fostering a lot of dogs, a lot of the rescues will start sending you more difficult dogs because they know you're an experienced foster. So uh, as you go along, you have to learn as you go. <laughs> Sink or swim kind of with some of these dogs. And one of the things I found was that most of or a lot of these dogs that are getting served rented to shelters or ending up in rescue are doing so because of behavior problems. And with aggression, it's not quite as forgiving as some of the other behavior problems that we might experience. And that can spell the ultimate fate of some dogs. So I really wanted to approach that problem and do the best I could to help the dogs from a personal level at first, helping the foster dogs, and then with client dogs, and then now to where I'm doing it now, helping other trainers work with the issue of aggression because it is one of the number one reasons for owner surrender or why dogs uh, might face certain outcomes. So uh, that really is what sparked my interest in aggression. And I also, I, I kind of like the specialty aspect of it too. I find that anybody who, who might relate to like focusing on something and just specializing on that, you just, it forces you to get better faster <laughs> and you kind of focus on that and you start diving deep into all of the everything that can surround that topic so that's what i really focused on for many years just everything i could read watch anybody i could follow or shadow or talk to i just went head first into all this stuff aggression and um, and it really helped me kind of uh, grow to where i am now by focusing on just that one topic rather than having to like work with puppies not that i mind working with puppies <laughs> um i i think i need that once in a while but uh or separation anxiety case there's some of the other issues if you focus on one thing it, it just helps you kind of stay in that lane i get really really good at your practice and it's funny that you you chose something like aggression especially coming from fostering that's something that most fosters typically shy away from and you're like oh challenge accepted yes it was fun at the time you know my house i used to joke it looked like alcatraz because of all the gates and crates and all these different things to keep, you know, I had kids too at, this, at the time, younger kids. And, uh, you know, you have to keep them safe. You have to keep the other dog safe, your own dog safe. If there's a dog-dog issue in the home or something like that, it kind of helps you get really good again because you're, you're right in there 24-7 living with these dogs. And you have to really be good at managing things at first to, to uh, pre- prevent any risks or safety issues. So... Yeah, it was uh, it was good times. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean. I at one point in my rescue career, I literally had dog rooms, not people rooms, where there were different. You know, I have a, a, a whelping female in this room and a dog aggressive dog in this room. And after a while, you're just like, ah, my my house is a dog house, not a human house. So um, I do want to ask you because uh, not only the conference that you recently hosted, but one of the podcasts that I listened to because you host the by the end of the leash uh, or the by the end of the dog rather, sorry, um, which is fantastic. You have some really wonderful guests on there. But one of the things that you talk about is actually defining aggression. It seems like such a fluid term. So in terms of handling like in the veterinary practice and just from your own personal perspective, being this focused, what do you kind of deem as aggressive behavior? You know, that 
That term changes every day for me. <laughs> I think I wake up thinking, <laughs> I think I'm going to call aggression this today, just because it is so fluid, as you mentioned, Sarah. That it, there, there are so many different different definitions. If you go out there in the academic literature or the human literature, or the dog, you know, texts, you're going to see different definitions for it. And the most common theme is, you know, intent to do harm. But I think it goes much further than that, um, especially if we talk about what we've selectively bred for for many years uh, and for the certain parts of the behavior patterns we're looking for in dogs and that we selectively bred for, we can go into that rabbit hole as well. But, um, you know, and, and the funny thing is I, my business name is aggressivedog.com. So I advertise that term, you know, aggression or aggressive, but I don't ever label a dog aggressive, right? So I never, it's like saying somebody's funny, and, you know, they're not going to be funny all the time. Um, so it's it's all a matter of looking at behavior, like the actual behaviors you are witnessing and watching, um, and it's uh, things like biting, snarling, snapping, growling, lunging. Those are all observable behaviors. Now we might label them aggressive, but what's really going to be much more helpful is when we know the actual behaviors, and we can modify that based on the environment and what the dog is experiencing. So I find it's much more helpful to get away from labels like aggression or reactivity uh, and focus more on the actual behaviors in the context in which they're happening. Yeah, so kind of more of an objective approach, like this is actually what the animal is doing and it's specific to this animal in this given situation. Um, and the other thing I think is interesting too is you mentioned doing harm and I often think of aggressive behaviors as an act also not not to perform harm, not to do harm to where, you know, a dog is giving you a signal, a growl perhaps that oftentimes humans see as aggressive behavior, but that's a warning. The dog is trying not to engage with you in what we would consider an aggressive way, like biting or grabbing or gripping or something like that. Right. So yeah, it's interesting to look at that. So, and the reason I bring that up in particular is because I think people do label dogs so easily, you know, in, in veterinary records in particular, if you go into their medical file, you see caution, you know, dog aggressive, human aggressive, muzzle, that kind of thing. And you bring up an excellent point that it, it really is at that moment in that situation in that given point in time and that behavior is also fluid and it changes so get more specific with it like what is actually happening the dog is growling when I approach you know from closer than six feet or the dog snapped when another dog walked by that was large and very hairy you know just being more specific so you can actually nail down what's really going on with that animal yeah absolutely it's, it's so important to look at the variables involved uh, not only from the external stimuli but what might be going on inside the animal and so you know and the thing with labels too like aggression or you know reactivity and, and i was just had uh, nando brown and joe rosie i recorded a podcast with them yesterday we were talking about this actual topic about these how certain terms that are actually you know they've been defined depending on which science you're you're working with but they've been defined quite quite rigorously in academic texts but in the dog training community we often start to shy away from those terms like the term dominance you know so of course is a, mm. is a very very loaded four-letter word in the dog training world uh, but there is something you know there is something that you know dog called dominance and it does exist in, in when we're talking about ethology and dog behavior uh, and then the next one that's been coming up a lot is like arousal and impulse control and uh, those are also hotly debated terms in the dog training world but they're very well defined in, in the rest of the scientific you know uh, community so i think it's it, once we have a good definition i don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater so i think even aggression has fairly well defined definitions uh, but again as you were just mentioning it's once we understand the definition that can help us as professionals understand sort of what's going on with the behavior but again it's most important to look at the environment the context uh, the observable behaviors and make educated decisions on how we're going to proceed with a behavior change plan based on those observable behaviors uh, rather than focusing on the label. Labels are helpful for like communication. Like, you know, with you and I, we could talk about, you know, I say, Eric, I've got this resource garter I'm going to refer to you. And you're going to have an idea what I'm talking about, uh, but it doesn't yeah. tell us what the dog is doing, right? So it's helpful between, I think, colleagues and, and people that have a basic understanding of a definition, but we do have to be careful who we use it with. 
and whether they can understand um, kind of what comes along with that terminology too. Because you, and you think about in the vet practice, these people are often communicating and um, kind of regurgitating the information that they're gathering about an animal back to a client. Right. And so if you think about the knowledge base, they're not, they don't know these different jargon terms, you know, that, that we can throw around in the training world or sometimes in the, in the vet behavior world too. So it's important to be able to adequately express just, just oh, what you're yes. talking about in terms of behavior, especially for that client yeah. afterwards. Think about how things get lost in translation, right? So, you know, we, oh, yeah. we as behavior professionals might communicate it to the veterinarian community or our veterinarian, and then they try to communicate to the client and that client communicates it to their friend. And now this, you know, formal yeah. concept known as arousal is a completely different thing by the time it gets to that last person. So we do have to be careful with how we define terms and how others might perceive them. Well, and what kind of emotional attachment the owner will have to that terminology as well. You know, oh, you labeled my dog as aggressive and, you know, he's perfectly fine in the house and he's sweet and friendly mm -hmm. except for and when. So yeah, they have that emotional connection with yeah. labels too. So Absolutely. I think getting people used to explaining the actual behavior versus that label is, can be helpful in a client situation. Absolutely. So um, I'd love to chat with you about some common handling practices, and I've taken your defensive handling class, and I think that was incredibly helpful, um, especially for shelter staff in particular. But um, some, I, I see, at least I feel, I see a lot of mistakes being made um, in practice in clinics, mostly because of time constraints. You know, you've got all these animals that you have to see within the day, and you got to get them in, you got to get them out. But what I really try to do when I'm in a veterinary practice and I'm talking to them about behavior and handling fear aggression or any other type of aggression really for that matter is that if you don't take the time to slow it down in that moment, the next time you see that animal, it's going to be twice as bad and it's just going to continue to get worse. So not only do I want to look at some common mistakes and I think t not spending enough time is one of those, but also some, some good practices and good handling skills for some of the staff members. And, and again, I... I agree with them. I um, empathize with them that the timing is is difficult. Training is often difficult, not having the resources to that. But what are some common practices that you think can help overall um, where people are having to handle higher quantities of um, these dogs that have some aggressive type behaviors coming in and out frequently? Yeah, that's a great question, especially in a veterinary practice or really think about any facility or place where there's going to be lots of animals coming in and out. So veterinary practice, kennels, uh, boarding, daycares, um, you know, th there's a lot of orchestration that goes on there. And a good thing to do is just have those standard protocols in place, those standard operating procedures as far as how to move about the environment, what you do with the handling. And you can kind of use other, um, use other industries for like examples of what this would look like. So, you know, I came from the restaurant industry many years back and, you know, it just it's not, oh, me too. It's, yeah, it's, it's not something you learn like necessarily. You just observe others doing it. So if you have a few in the office that can set a good, good example and you, they can teach those people like, you know, behind you, like you in the restaurant industry know what that means. When it's behind you, that means you're carrying a huge tray of hot Order. coffee or something <laughs> and the person's maybe facing away from you, but they hear that and they know you're to watch out for you behind you. That just a little term like that. And the same thing can happen if you're moving, let's say, a dog that has a history of aggression towards other dogs. You can move that dog to the office and use the same kind of things behind you, coming this way, coming through, whatever it is. Um, and I, you know, I saw that really nicely orchestrated when I went to, I, I took a visit with Trish, uh, Trish McMillan, my colleague, to the ASPCA in New York City. Now, when you're talking, you know, if you go to like Wisconsin, you've got these beautiful places like the ASPCA or the, the Humane Society, and it's one level, so it's because you can sprawl out the space, so it's a lot easier to control the dynamics. The ASPCA, like think New York City, it is not going sideways, it is up. So the building is straight up and down, like one or two elevators, small tight spaces all these floors and they have some of the gnarliest dogs that you can find on the planet like yeah. you've got dogs coming from fight bus cruelty cases and all of these really uh tricky dogs sometimes and they have the the art and science of moving dogs around to it really down because they they have uh, protocols that the dogs always get the right of way so if so you see somebody coming with a dog and you're a human you step aside because you never know what that person kind of dog that person's handling. Coming out of an elevator, you announce that. Going into an elevator, you announce that. I mean, they've got it all thought out. They've got like emergency fight kits on every single floor. They've got a little red button on the wall that you hit if there's an emergency. They've got riot wow. shields. I mean, they've got it all thought out because, because through experience, 
they've had to deal with, I'm sure, many different types of emergencies. So, but having those those practices in place ahead of time, you can really avoid uh, issues. You know, having uh, certain places where or certain directions somebody would walk with a dog, a, a location or side that the dog would be walked on. So we're going to keep dogs to our right or all dogs to the left. Yeah, well, as we're moving down the hallway, as we're coming around this corner where there's maybe a patient coming in and out of that office, we're going to look first and then go. Um, so once you look at the layout and the sort of the traffic pattern of that particular office or setting, that can make such a big difference. And it seems so trivial, right? It seems like, oh, really? I'm going to like look at the floor plan? Absolutely. Because once you start looking at where dogs are coming and going, you're going to see a pattern. You know, patients coming out of here, maybe you've seeing patients having issues like a few scuffles at the front door why not address that before it becomes a major problem or maybe it has become a problem already but uh, you know address it ahead of time it's going to mitigate a lot of issues so that's first and foremost kind of looking at the overall picture and then of course teaching good handling skills to everybody teaching them how to handle a leash uh, not holding well veterinary practice are using much more shorter leashes but sometimes a cl uh, client or a patient will walk in they're holding this loop end of a six foot leash and the dog's way out and they're going to be able to go right up to any other dog in the office or maybe to another patient that is a retractable leash yes, in the yeah. lobby so yeah. having those established <laughs> rules ahead of time um and it's, it's kind of a side note the interesting thing about the pandemic is that they haven't had a lot of the offices haven't had to deal with this right because they're picking up patients curbside bringing them in and so uh, it's an interesting thing that that actual that can be an actual solution for the future, you know, seeing patients that need a quick check or a quick uh, immunization in the parking lot so they don't have to go actually into the office. It's much, can often be a lot less stressful for that kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, good handling practices are something um, I recommend anybody working in that environment, just getting the basics down, leash handling and proactive defensive handling are really important. Well, it pays off in the long run, the more that you put into the staff as they're coming into your in, into the door up front, you know, so, so often I, I get so worried about new employees that are being trained that aren't being shown and aren't especially shown more modern techniques, because I, I find that oftentimes when you start seeing these aggressive behaviors in animals that you didn't prior in patients that hadn't been displaying them prior, there's a reason for that. And sometimes it's over handling or stressful handling. So <clears throat> kind of shifting more to as little as possible, you know, trying to keep it not going straight into a scruff or straight into a, a bear hug and hold for, you know, a, a blood draw, something simple like that to where you're only using the necessary amount of handling. So you're not creating a problem where a problem doesn't exist right and it's you know i'm sure many of your listeners have heard of the fear-free veterinary movement um and fear-free vet practice fear-free trainers i mean there's lots of uh great information out there right now about how to um how to really help dogs in that kind of environment uh, not be stressed so um you know it's it's all about really low restraint, low stress handling. And the way to do that is to take, as you mentioned, to try to take your time. And there's probably some veterinarians and vet practices out there listening like, well, I don't always have the time. We have to move these dogs so quickly. But there's still in the micro moments that you can do things to really help these dogs become more comfortable. Um, you know, ample amounts of treats and, and good things happening when the dogs are in the clinic, when possible to do so. Sometimes the dogs can't have food, but whenever possible, lots of cookies, lots of treats. And I, I really recommend for the trainers that are listening to get on board with their veterinarians or their clients' veterinarians to start looking at doing office visits that are just for fun. You know, get in there and just, you know, this this place that the dog goes to should, should be, there should be oodles of fun happening and just visits without being poked or prodded or anything. So the dog can just get used to it and explore it just like it's anybody else's house or any other place they're going to. I mean, think about the difference between a dog that walks to a pet store that comes out walking out with a stuffed animal or to or toy or, or or bone that it chooses. Why not do the same thing with the vet's office? You think about the excitement and happiness that dog gets going into a pet store for a lot of clients. Why not do the same thing with the vet's office? Go in there and get your favorite new little treat or toy or whatever and come out of there having a good experience. That way the one out of four or five times you have to go there for an exam, it is not so stressful, right? Because the last four times you were there, really awesome things happen. So it creates a nice uh, association with that environment. Yeah, exactly. Taking that time up front. And I can tell you just in my own practice and working in the veterinary field for so long, it makes such a difference in 
those puppy owners that start their puppy off by going to the vet is fun. And, and oftentimes it starts off just um, as a byproduct because they're bringing them in to weigh them for their next dose of heart preve heartworm preventive because mm -hmm. it goes up in, in pounds. But if you continue that process and you come in and you just say hello to the front desk girls and you get a treat or the next time you come in and you go into the exam room and you get a cookie, maybe the next time you walk around and say hi to the vet and get a cookie and then you leave, you're right, you can build this really happy, positive, emotional state when it comes to being there, and you're more likely to see some of those you know, cooperative care behaviors from the animal because they're not afraid. They don't have any reason to shy away from you. They've had all these wonderful experiences. And so taking the time to do that up front can, can help immensely in the long run when it comes to what kind of animal you're looking at handling in the future. And you just mentioned something really important there, the cooperative care aspects in husbandry. If I I get so many clients just because of that aspect hasn't been focused on by a client. So like so many of my clients come with dogs that have aggression because they don't like their nails trimmed or their ears cleaned or to be restrained or held in any certain way. And so that's if it was done ahead of time, if we concentrated on not necessarily teaching the dog to sit, stay and typical things we might do in a foundational uh, training class, if we focused a lot also on the aspects of husbandry and what a veterinary exam might look like or grooming might look like or a nail trim might look like for that dog, you're going to mitigate a lot of problems later on down the line. And so if, if, if clients could focus on that or, or pet owners would focus on that early on, I'd find that much more valuable than some of the other things we might have, you know, might focus on teaching dogs in a lot of our typical training curriculums. Well, that can start right there with the puppy visits. You think about the average puppy that has, if they, if they get them, you know, five, six weeks or eight, nine weeks, they still have at least three visits to complete that series of puppy vaccines where they, they can be educating the client saying, palpation is really important too. Handle their feet, you know, touch them with the nail trimmers, get them comfortable with those, play with their ears, get in their little mouths, you know, get them used to things like that so you can brush their teeth later and we can do dental exams later and touch their tails and, you know, just a lot of those simple foundational handling skills that can help overall in the long run if they if they're educating those clients in the room about those things right from the get-go oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so many problems can be avoided and, and trust me I've seen some cases it's just gone so sideways because of poor advice they might get online or something like that or they're straining yeah. the dog pinning the dog down and just forcing this particular procedure it can get really bad quickly, so I implore, I implore uh, the trainers out there that are listening, or pet owners that listen, to really just to just keep pushing that that need for uh, preventative maintenance, uh, the husbandry and handling exercises. Yeah, and asking for that support too, because the vet staff has to progress with behavior just as much as the behavior professionals have to progress with behavior. That's an important piece mm -hmm. of your practice in general. Um, and I, I still hear it. I still, from time to time hear my vet told me to alpha roll my puppy, you know, and it's like, <laughs> wait, wait a minute. Why, why are we doing that? Um, well, because he tried to bite me in the room and you know, that kind of thing. So, um, I think spending some time, um, just a small amount of time with some continu continuing education in the practice can really help advance those behavior skills. So, you know, what advice to offer those clients rather than just kind of regurgitating, you know, kind of what's been said all along or, or kind of the old methods and old ways, so to speak. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like you can learn so much in such a little amount of time, just focusing on behavior in the vet practice. So, but obviously if you're listening to this podcast, that's what you're doing. So good for you. <laughs> so, um, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about too is, is, Aggression seems to be a generalized term sometimes to where it's a, it's almost a blanket statement. You know, this, um, this uh, you know, three-year-old German shepherd intact male is coming through the door and he's aggressive. Okay, that's a blanket term. But when it comes to handling skills, we're going to handle that dog way differently than we're going to handle the golden doodle that's coming in that is petrified and afraid and shivering in the corner kind of thing. Both of them have the same potential outcome with their behavior. Both of them have the um, ability and, and possibly the intent to bite if pushed beyond those thresholds. But I think it's important to notate, and I would love for you to talk about this for a minute, about how your approach and your handling skills, even though these are aggressive cases, are going to be completely different. Yeah. So there's a lot to unpack there. And, and you know, if I'm handling dogs that are unknown to me, that's one thing. So uh, we can kind of separate into two categories. So as a trainer working with a client 
where I'm able to sit down with them first and get some of the history and understand what some of the triggers are for that dog, that's going to arm me with information first to kind of know how to handle that dog or even if I'm going to handle the dog in the first place, right? So I think we have that one context where I might be able to get all that information and make a plan based on the information I just gathered and to avoid doing certain things, right? So if that, if that doodle bit somebody handling the toes, I'm not going to handle its toes. Or if the German Shepherd bites people and anybody who gets close, I'm not going to go near that dog at first until I've triaged and made a plan to do so. Now, on the other side of the coin, you have dogs you have no idea about. So folks in the veterinary clinic uh, for the first time seeing a patient or a shelter staff maybe handling a dog for the first time, you don't know that dog's history. And so whether it's a Chihuahua or a Great Dane, uh, we still want to be very good at the handling aspect because we don't want them to get bitten. But we also uh, kind of want to be very good at the body language reading aspect. So that's where it can take time in regards to becoming a seasoned handler. It's not something that comes overnight when it comes to reading body language. So if I was to teach a skill to everyone out there who's going to be handling aggressive dogs, the first thing I'm going to do is actually teach them how to read body language before I even focus necessarily on the mechanics of leash handling. Because if I if they can't recognize when something's about to happen, it does no good to them because dogs are faster than us, right? They're going to they're gonna be able to bite <laughs> us yeah. much faster than we're able to react in most cases, if, especially if they're right next to us on a leash. So I can teach them good defensive handling skills, how to stop a dog bite or dog attack, but it's much better if they can read the dog ahead of time and say, okay, oh, he's uncomfortable with me there or she's feeling, feeling fearful there. I see she's avoiding me or licking her lips or turning her head, freezing. You know, those, those you see some of the more subtle signs and that can take time to learn. It's just like reading people or, you know, like any other uh, skill where you have to interpret something that's happening and then des decide what's going to maybe happen next. So uh, body language is really important for the unknown dogs or all dogs. Even if I'm working with a dog I know the history of, I'm still going to be want to be very good at reading the body language. So you have a couple different contexts there in which you would have to be handling dogs. Now, if it, to go back to your example of, let's say, the doodle coming into the office or the German Shepherd, the handling's actually not going to differ too much, you know, because um, other than based on the size of the dog. So obviously, a, the larger the dog, the more risk there is for from a handling aspect. The taller the dog, the more risk there is. Um, there's certain techniques you can use for um, small, medium, even slightly larger dogs. That'll work universally. But once you start getting to a certain height, certain techniques that you might use on a leash, uh, there's something like a straight arm, it's called, where you, you would, you know, if the dog tries to bite you and the dog's got a leash on and you have the leash left, set correctly they try to bite you you're able to move the dog away from you just by putting your arm straight out to the side so emergency handling technique only not a training technique uh, it's just for <laughs> emergency scenarios but it's a good way to avoid a dog bite if the dog's about to bite you or attack you um, that straight arm can work well for most medium to small sized dogs you start getting into like great dane sized dogs or taller dogs or really strong dogs or really strong rottweiler or something um, you have to be really careful because even if you straight arm the dog, they might be really powerful and you're going to get tired really quickly or even knocked over. So whenever you start looking at larger sized dogs, they often recommend two handlers or somebody to help you handle the dog as a safety uh, because it's, again, not worth the risk of, of, you know, the risk becomes much greater with a larger dog just because of the damage they can do and they can overpower you easily. So I recommend two handlers. Sometimes you can do a two leash handling method where you have two leashes on a dog. Um, the leashes are set in a way that if the dog tries to bite either one of you, the dog physically can't get to either one of you. So there's a technique in that where you are actually are holding the leash all the way at the end of the leash rather than closer to you. Um, and the leash is kept just a little bit of slack there. You don't want to be hanging the dog up like on a clothesline. The <laughs> leashes are kept slack, but not so loose where the dog, if it tried to bite either handler, uh, would be able to so and again a skill that needs to be practiced ahead of time not just like all right let's find the gnarliest aggressive dog we can find and and try to use this <laughs> technique two first. Slip on it. yeah use <laughs> practice you can uh, we as you have experience we practice you know you can use a stuffed dog or even a person use a human being just as the, the dog and it's just a good way to practice the mechanics of it because uh, it's it's not a technique that's easy to learn uh, the first time you do it so 
All those things come into play. Well, and I want to yep. point something sure. out about your, your method too. And, and I really want to just put an exclamation point on this. What you mentioned about having some slack in that lead. So being cognizant of the tension that's on the leash, because as we know, you know, handling dogs, the more tension there is on the leash, the more tension you're kind of spring loading into that animal right. as well. And, and the more likely there's going to be some reactivity because of that. So um, I just wanted to point that out that when you're practicing a method like that with a double, a, a double lead and two mm -hmm. handlers, that there is that slack. And even when you're just handling a dog that's kind of iffy on a leash in general, or even not trying to get it to where it is nice and loose so that you aren't accidentally bringing in some tension into an environment where otherwise there, there wouldn't be necessarily. Yeah. Tight, tight leashes are definitely our enemy when it comes to dog behavior because it can really restrict movement. Uh, and take away the flight option. And if you take away the flight option with many dogs who are fearful, you are often left with the freeze or the flight or fight option rather. And that's the problem for us. So uh, loose leashes are very important. Now, there is a caveat to that. Some, again, veterinary practices, they have to use the uh, sort of short slip leads uh, because because of the pro uh, problem of disease being spread, they, they're using these disposable leads. So it may not be economically feasible to use like this brand new leash every single time that's six feet long or uh, something that can be clipped to a collar. Sometimes they're using these four foot uh, handling leads. And that actually has to be kept somewhat tight because uh, if you allow slack in it, the dog's going to be slip right out. So there are some caveats to that. But again, it can be done in a way that there's just a tiny bit of tension. And if your leash handling is good, you're going to be able to still move the dog from point A to point B, so from the from the exam room back to the lobby, uh, without necessarily putting a whole lot of pressure on there. The more you start to tighten on that leash, uh, as tr as Trish, my colleague, says, nobody makes good decisions when they're being strangled, and so if it's a tight <laughs> leash around the dog's neck, it's going to be a problem. So same same thing in the shelter environment. Often they're using slip leads again just to move from point A to point B with the dog, but with the, the tighter it gets, the more problems you run into. So um, you can use slip leads in a way that it's there's just a tight amount of tension to prevent it from slip, slipping off, but without necessarily uh, making the dog feel very restricted. Yeah, that's great advice. I, I love the way she put that. That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and let's let's chat about equipment for just a moment because um, you know, just in practice, I've seen a lot of owners that come in with mi complete misuse of equipment. For example, you know, you come in with uh, the Great Dane pops to my mind because you mentioned that you know, Great Dane comes in with a the dangling prong collar on the neck, and then the owner hands you the leash. And so before curbside, you know, now with curbside with COVID, everybody's putting the leash, the slip lead on out in the parking lot. And it's two of them in order to be aha. But oftentimes the owner will just hand the leash over to the technician or the nurse or the assistant. Mm -hmm. And um, I always encourage people that if there's and you can feel free to step in and jump in and give me your opinion on this, but if there's a misuse of equipment that could potentially cause a problem where a problem, again, doesn't exist, don't hesitate to switch that out. And don't hesitate to let the owner see you switch that out. And to and if that, to me, encourages questions from the owner. Oh, why did you put that leash on instead? Why did you take my prong collar off and hand it back to me and hand me the slip lead instead of handing me or putting the prong collar back on the dog? Um, and that's just one example. I mean, obviously, there's a million different um, scenarios with when it comes to equipment on dogs. But how do you feel about that when it comes to you know changing that out and having the confidence to do that, and then and and opening that door as far as education goes for the client? Yeah. So I think it's if the, a lot of clients will see professionals doing things, and they often will either follow suit because the professionals do that, and that's why we have to be careful what we do. In the eyes of a client, yes. because they might think it's okay. You know, that, you know, if we don't explain why we're doing something or we're using a certain technique or tool in a certain way, they might think it's okay in all contexts when it may not be appropriate for some things. Like the slip lead, for example, they might say, "Okay, well, they used it at the vet office, and then well, so I'm going to just walk my dog on that." And so we have to explain right. when it's appropriate. Um, and so switching out equipment, um, it's you can. You know, sometimes explain things. It depends on how much there's, there's a lot of variables there in which I would approach it. So, if it was a client, it would depend on how much rapport and a relationship I have with that client, how receptive they are to my recommendations. If it's somebody brand new, I'd probably avoid like even talking about it at that moment until I have enough trust built. Because if I come uh -huh. out firing to somebody like, oh, don't use that because of even if as nice as you can be, right? You could say it as nicely as you want right. because if there's problems for this you might not be building that bridge that you need for that conversation to take place in the future successfully. So I prefer sometimes just, just, you know, just do, you know, do kind of 
followed by lead. So I'll switch out the equipment, put something else on, not necessarily get into the topic of it, and then um, see that the you know client will see you doing something with the dog that's successful. So from a training aspect, um, they often will start to ask questions later on. So it's a little different than the veterinary setting because you're not always going to have time to necessarily explain it right from the get-go. But later on, maybe subsequent visits or even later when you have some trust established with that client, you're more likely to be able to have a successful conversation. So um, a little side note too on when you're putting on the slip lead or the, the lead to get the dog into the vet office, lead by example again. So if you bring cookies with you, right, and just... You know, you're gonna you're gonna put the cookie out like this, and you hold your hand out, and then the slip lead's already around your arm. And then, whoop, then the dog gets the cookie right after the slip lead goes on. So you're giving that, uh, you're really showing how conditioned associations can start working. Like cookie happens every time you get this slip lead on, but we're also working with the dog at the same time, right? And so it can have a lot of benefits just to uh, show that that kind of stuff can happen. But work with the dog. Why not? Why not take that opportunity to say, okay, when you come see me, I'm I'm the person with the cookies, so you're gonna to want to keep coming back, hopefully. Yeah, and, and you and in mentioning developing a rapport with the client, if the if the dog is happier to see you and you and they see that transition much easier for their pet, their family member, they're much more likely to trust you and trust the education that you have to give to them in return as well. Yeah, and just a side note, um, one coming from the medical field, always ask them if it's okay. Um, you know, they see a lot of dogs with with allergies or food intolerances, so the first thing I always do is ask if it's okay. But I feel like owners really appreciate that extra step, and for us, it's not really extra. We want the dogs to be comfortable and happy in that environment. But the owner might not be used to that, and the owner might really, really appreciate that. And again, you're you're developing that trust so that you can they'll they'll listen to you and you can give them that information and that education when the time comes. And you know, doctor, um, I was talking to Dr. Sally Foote the other day about this as well, is that um, vet offices often have um, such a, a large audience. You know, they build up these email lists and they use social platforms. And so sometimes it's not necessarily about the messaging directly to the client, but being sure to take advantage of those platforms that you have to send out generalized information for best practices. Like when you come to our hospital, here's what to expect. We might offer your dog a cookie and here's why, you know, explaining that to them. Or we might use different equipment than you do and here's why. Um, things like destigmatizing the the muzzle. Like we think your dog will be more comfortable in a muzzle because, and here's what we do while they're muzzled. They get some peanut butter on their muzzle. They get to have fun cookies just like everybody else but your dog is less stressed and less likely to use his teeth, you know, things like that. So taking advantage of kind of those platforms and pushing out that generalized information so that when the client comes in the door, it's not necessarily at them. You know, it's not your dog and your specific example, but we're doing this for everybody because we care about yes. all of our clients. Yeah, I, lo I love that. And it's kind of the nice thing about the fear-free movement as well. It's just, it's kind of putting a brand or this, this name to all the stuff people are seeing, right? And and I find that's useful really in any, any industry, like, you know, the, the health and fitness industry, you know, we see many trends where somebody puts a label on something. And if you see things that happen within that umbrella, you start to recognize, oh, that's that, that's that, you know, movement. So like, you mm -hmm. know, with, with the health and fitness industry, you might see the, hear the term like mobility. So people start to understand like years ago, people wouldn't really understand what that meant, but now people are starting to grasp onto that. And you see lots of, as you had mentioned, people on social media and Instagram influencers and people that are really into that stuff, they start to put out videos and you start to recognize what that is. So it's rather than just seeing a video of a dog putting a muzzle with peanut butter on, you're kind of like, oh, okay, you know, what's going on there? But if it's got a movement attached to it, I find that that's really helpful. So uh, that's why I'm really, I really always highly uh, talk about the fear-free movement because it puts a great label on what's happening and why it's so beneficial. Uh, you know, and, and of course, all the, the resources they provide as well has is, is, is been wonderful for the, um, for the industry. Well, and it's interesting you bring that up because I, I do feel like they make it really easy for practices in particular. Like they mm -hmm. give you so many outlines, so many ideas and how to, you know, kind of how to follow this practice um, to where it's as little effort on your end as possible. So for people that are concerned about time, right. that can really help with that concern because you can do it very easily. But I will tell you, I've actually gotten some kickback from some veterinary hospitals because... Um, you know, you have to pay the annual membership mm -hmm. and you have to pay to certify your employees. And 
But to me, it's just like any other club. Yes, this is a movement. They're trying to educate an entire population, an entire mass. And in order to do that, sometimes you do have to use that labeling system. But um, yeah, you, you have to think about the investment in the long run. You know, mm -hmm. think of the time that you save instead of putting all of this information together yourself. You can just pull from what they have. So it can be an expense. And, and I've, I've heard a lot of kickback about that to upkeep those certifications. But at the same time, you know, that's kind of how this practice is evolving and yes. how it can really help yeah, I, better your I practice. I think it's, a, a, you know, not to get too off topic, but I do think it is a matter of um, what the benefit is in return whenever we're joining any organization. Mm -hmm. So you and I are, are members of various organizations and what kind of benefit you receive in return. And you have to kind of weigh that. Sometimes there is, there is really not much benefit for us. We're supporting a movement. We're supporting the cause. We're supporting education, continuing education. Uh, but with things like the fear-free uh, uh, veterinary movement, I think that uh, eventually it's going to you're going to see a transition to people actually seeking out and that becoming a product for that's going to be good for that veterinary practice in the long run. It's getting there, and I know I see it with my clients. I have clients actually, without me saying anything about it, which is great. That's when I know something's starting to take hold. Is my my clients ask me about you know do you know any fear good fear-free vet practices or I heard yes. about this fear-free thing. And so that's great because now, you know, I have a nice uh, number of veterinary practices I refer to that have either a vet that's certified or the whole practice is certified and fear-free. So think about that from a, from a marketing and business standpoint as well. So I think um, it's, it's getting there. But uh, so if anybody that's listening that's kind of worried about the cost of it, patience <laughs> and uh and and i think it's going to yeah. just continue to grow as as as, as the uh, movement goes along so yeah i do think it's worth it and i think um you know there there were a, a lot of people out there that learned what aha was the american animal hospital association and that they have these high standards of patient care and of course everybody everybody wants the best care so mm -hmm. then you start looking for aha specific animal hospitals and i think you're right just some of the facebook Facebook groups that I belong to where everyday pet parents are on these groups and chatting back and forth about things. I've seen it a number of times come up where they're like, I want to take my dog to a fear-free practice. I just moved here from New York. I just moved here from Atlanta. I just moved here from California. Everybody's moving to Charlotte, I feel like. But <laughs> um, one of the things we see that's common is asking about fear-free practices. It's, it is becoming a thing now. And I think it's better to kind of join the fight than go against the grain because it can only benefit you in the long run. I think when a client actually experiences that, if somebody that really is good at handling and start and makes those little adjustments in their practice they're sold you know they go from one practice that the dog was really frightened and then they go to this new one that's what sells them a lot of my clients that have shifted are so glad that they did that because it's such a different experience for their pet and um mm -hmm. that, that's that sells itself right the, dog, the dog's coming out yeah. of that practice really happy and just enjoying enjoying the experience rather than being frightened uh, and as they typically would in that kind of setting. Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the human behaviors that the fear-free movement um, focuses on in particular. And I think that's something we should cover. I think we should talk about some of that because sure. um, it is the human behaviors, what you're doing in your practice and how you're interacting with that animal and what your overall energy is like um, that contributes to either their progress or their regression when it comes to aggressive tendencies at times. So. What are your thoughts on some human behaviors, whether um, good ones or bad ones, so to speak? You know, they don't define people. We just define behaviors. Yeah. But um, just overall, you know, human practices that help um, contribute to alleviating the need for an animal to feel like they have to act out. Yeah, I think um, one of the big things that we need to get away from is having to be assertive. Well, you know, this air quotes up assertive or this this notion of dominance or the dog is trying to one-up us all the time i mean most of us get that now but it's still a, pre a prevalent myth in dog culture where if we allow a dog to like growl at us we're losing the battle or something and they'll just do it more often so really first and foremost is just to dispel that complete myth and to and to be successful with dogs and this is this is you know I'm a product of that. I'm, I'm one that used to think that way. This is 20 years ago and shifted my training method and, and my knowledge over the years. And, and I'm a walking example of knowing that it's really important to do the complete opposite. If I want a dog to trust me and for a relationship to be built and to, for me to be successful in front of that client, I'm doing the complete opposite. I want to make that dog as most comfortable with me as possible, not try to confront the dog or 
uh, be assertive in any way, I'm actually doing the opposite. I'm soft with my voice, soft with my body language, uh, giving them all the goodies in the world. I want to build a relationship with that dog that's trusting rather than confrontational. So that's the first thing to think about. And if you think about that, uh, you know, if you if you think about what non-confrontational body language or movements or voice or actions look like, then you can start to replicate that with whether it's humans or animals. You can kind of think that in your own mind. What would I do to make myself look less confrontational to someone or a dog? It's the same. You, you wouldn't be hard staring. You wouldn't be directly staring them in the eye. You wouldn't be frontally like puffing your chest out. You'd be kind of like not making not necessarily a lot of direct eye contact. You'd be turning away. Your voice would be soft. Um, your movements would be kind of slow and uh, relaxed. Um, so it's it's the same thing. And so if people put themselves kind of into that mindset, it translates really well. Even if they don't have experience much with animals or dogs that have history of aggression, that little change can make such a huge difference. So uh, starting first kind of with, with that overall picture, and then you can start getting skilled at the micro details. Like, okay, if I've got a dog coming in that's got issues with handling its paws, that takes those are the skills that can take time to learn and like how to move around how to do things like counter conditioning and 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 the aspects the mechanical aspects of just how close to get to a dog how to read the body language all of those things start to add up over time um, but again the name of the game there is going at the dog's pace um, reading the dog's body language and adjusting accordingly our own actions to make sure the dog is most comfortable uh, feeling the least threatened by us and what we're doing. Yeah, self-awareness is a huge piece. I think oftentimes because we anthropomorphize, we we think that we are being soothing or we think we're acting a certain way, but you have to think about it from the dog's perspective. Is what I'm doing helping this situation or is it making this situation worse? So I, I think that's an excellent point, like that self-awareness to where you can actually calibrate and understand what you're projecting or what your body language is saying to the animal. I mean, I'm right there with you. I, I was, you know, you, you, you grow up a certain way and it's just old habits that you don't even think about what you're doing necessarily, but you can be very confrontational without a forethought. It's just a, a reaction, so to speak. You know, I was the same way when I grew up training. Um, my old 15-year-old pit bull was one of the first ones to teach me hands-on that this this dominating confrontational style to where I challenge him is not going to work. You know, it takes that one dog to kind of teach you that. But, um, and I think, I think oftentimes that's not even, you're not even aware of that. It's just what you do and how you are, are used to working. And so taking a step back and actually thinking about what you're doing, what your body is saying, what your voice is saying, what your energy level is saying is so important because then you can really shift that. Then you can start mm -hmm. to really work on the relationship that you have with that dog, even if it's just for a short period of time. Because think about how many times you're going to see this dog, especially if you're in a veterinary practice or if you're a behavior professional, you know, helping with a, with a, a veterinary team, you're going to see this dog multiple times. So even if you only have a 10 minute interaction with them each time and you make it the best you possibly can, according to the dog, that's going to add up over time. And that's going to decrease their stress and decrease their likelihood for some of those aggressive tendencies that we worry about. So I love that self-awareness. Yeah. I mean, cause, cause dogs, you, you had, hit the nail on the head there as far as their awareness uh, you know us being self-aware because they're so aware of what we're doing i mean they're so yeah. so good at seeing those micro signals i mean that's how they've evolved <laughs> for thousands of years is watching our very subtle signals our facial expressions our movements our actions that has allowed them to um, adapt to us and thrive with us you know as our companions and being domestic animals with us and and not all the time even in in you know vast majority of dogs in the world are not owned by anybody and those dogs survive really well by watching the actions of the humans around them and so you know if there's a history of punishment or somebody doing something confrontational to a dog they are going to remember that and they're going to remember every little yes. subtle signal that happened before that it could be as, as subtle as a frown on your face and i see it happen all the time and the dog's going to see that in some other context and be like, uh-oh, what's happening here? And then if we carry that over into other situations without realizing it, that becomes a cue in the environment that says something bad's about to happen here. So I'm going to mm -hmm. either avoid that or worse, in the cases I see, a lot of times the dog's like, no, nah, this is not good for me. So the way I know how to get out of it is to growl, bark, lunge, or bite uh, to get myself out of this potentially dire situation because of what I've learned in the past. 
and there's it's the micro signals that they're reading and and they're so so good yeah. at it well, and it's interesting too, is that it's not always the person that's directly handling the animal. So I've seen it before to where, you know, if you're in a treatment area and you've got multiple staff members there and the person that's interacting with the dog is, is doing everything according to the dog and has appropriate body language and energy. And then you have someone else in the room that, um, for example, you know, we talk about one of the triggers that can set a, do a dog off to where something bad is going to happen because of previous examples. You know, you've got another technician that maybe yells to the pharmacist, hey, Kim, I need that prescription. And just that elevation of voice yep. <laughs> in that room can set that dog off. So it's not just about the person necessarily interacting with the dog, yep. but you're right. Like those subtleties yep. make such a difference. And that's when you hear, it happened out of the blue, right? So, so yeah, you know, he just snapped. Yeah, he just went, he just bit me. I don't know what I did. You know, I didn't do anything. And, and when you go back and mm -hmm. analyze, you start to see those, those triggers uh, start to become a common pattern in the aggressive incidents with that dog. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or you're you're seeing some of those stacking behaviors to where yeah. it's not any one specific thing, but this dog just came through and this dog is afraid of other dogs and, you know, has some aggressive tendencies. And then this person came through and was a little bit louder. And then, you know, something over here dropped. And then I heard somebody in x-ray. So all these things, one on top of the other on top of the other, and then boom, you know, you get this kind of explosion of behavior afterwards. So just being yeah. aware of the entirety of the environment as well, I think can help significantly. Um, all right. So um, we talked a little bit about equipment, but I want to pick your brain about muzzles. Um, I don't want to keep you too long, but I would love to hear your um, advice about muzzles because um, just from my perspective, and I'd love to hear what you like the most and which ones that you recommend, but I really like the use of basket muzzles, really durable basket muzzles, so you can feed treats through them. They can drink, they can pant, um, and I still see a lot of traditional use of muzzles. Even in the practices that I visit, you've got your wall of basket muzzles, but the go-to is always the cloth muzzle that restricts everything. And I think some of that is from fear. You know, Some of it is from not understanding handling or how muzzles work, or they might come off, they might slip off, so having that really tight restraint makes the handler feel safer. But I think that's damaging in the long run. So I want to hear from you what you think about that. And do you think we should sh see more of that shift? Um, and not to mention from, from, from a client education perspective, you know, I think it's helpful to educate the clients that, you know, muzzles aren't bad and, and teaching your dog to wear one is actually just a fun skill, just like sit down, stay, and, and it can be helpful in the veterinary environment. So what do you think about muzzle use in specific types do you agree or yes. are you okay with the traditional so let's unpack that a little um well first i'll give a shout out to the muzzle up project <laughs> uh so anybody who needs <laughs> yeah. information whether you're a professional whether you're a pet owner and you need information about all things muzzles whether it's acclimation what kind what size how to fit it uh, muzzleupproject.com or on facebook yes. muzzle up the muzzle up project uh, on instagram as well uh i've got a great team uh sarah mcmahonman's one of my uh my go-to social media people for that and she's actually the one been been great about maintaining the uh, muzzle up project uh, initiative but um so the 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 muzzles all right let's talk about stigmas first and that is when i have a client or anybody that's kind of worried about using muzzles or why you know they, you get pushback sometimes because they're worried about it's cruel or they can't do certain things so some of the myths you want to dispel is that the dogs can't you know eat drink or do or bite or you know there's there's reasons for using muzzle because we don't want them to bite uh, since sometimes we don't want them to eat something off the ground they're used to eating rocks or something like that that's the other cases we might use a muzzle uh, or there's a potential to bite um, but a good fitting well-fitted muzzle is going to allow the dog to eat drink pant yawn vomit do everything else except bite so that's what we're looking for in a well fit muzzle um, then you're also looking for the dog to be comfortable wearing it and so that's where the acclimation piece comes in we want to make sure anytime we're getting at putting a muzzle on a dog we've spent time acclimating the dog to wearing it just like any other piece of equipment we take time pairing that muzzle with good things happening whether it's food in some cases you might not be able to use food but most cases you're able to use treats where the dog is eating treats out of the muzzle or they're associating having a muzzle on with getting treats and again most muzzles you're able to feed treats through or use some sort of soft food like spray cheese or peanut butter or a food tube when you're feeding through the muzzle so that's really important because uh, a muzzle can be restrictive to a dog because it's something sitting on their face just like if somebody put something on our face we'd feel a little bit restricted so um, if we make sure it's a good experience all the time, then we run less risk of the dog having a negative association with it. 
And the selling point for muzzles is that they're way cheaper than dog bites, right? It's hmm. a lot cheaper to buy a muzzle Excellent point. than to, it is to uh, experience a lawsuit. The average lawsuit uh, back in, I think it was 2018, it was around $18,000 for a dog bite. But that's on the low end. Most, I've had cases where it gets into the $300,000, $400,000 range if there's a dog bite. Wow. And that's just the financial aspect. And then you, you're lucky if you can get homeowner's insurance again, if it's a homeowner's claim. And there's, of course, the ultimate problem with what can happen to your dog. So uh, sometimes seized by animal control, sometimes uh, disposal orders are issued, dangerous dog, vicious dog designations in some states. So uh, a muzzle will prevent all those issues. So um, it, it, they, they don't have to be cruel or unusual. They, don't have, they can be actually done the opposite where the dog looks forward to wearing one. It prevents bites. It prevents lawsuits. It prevents all these issues that can happen. Um, so... Lots of benefits to muzzles. Now, when we look at context, let's talk about that next, the context in which we use a muzzle. So for veterinary exams, emergency scenarios where let's say a dog is, uh, we find an injured dog and we need to, and the dog's trying to bite everybody that comes near it. That's different than if I'm, if I have a dog that has a history of uh, maybe fighting with other dogs or uh, has bitten somebody in the past and we're doing it in a training context. So if I'm in a training context, I'm gonna take time not expose the dog to those those triggers for a while, get the dog used to wearing a muzzle, and then gradually start working with them around those triggers again. In emergency scenarios or vet visits, we might opt for just putting a muzzle on the dog. They might not be acclimated to it. And so you'll see the muzzles you were just mentioning, Sarah, about the ones that are just sleeve muzzles, cloth muzzles, the vinyl ones that just slip on and hold the dog's mouth shut. Now, here's my argument for I'm okay with those sometimes because Number one, they're easier to put on. Number two, they can be safer in the degree of the dog not being able to open its mouth. Some muzzles you have to be careful with, especially if it's a client purchase muzzle, they might not be fitting it correctly. It might be too loose. The dogs can still bite through some muzzles. Uh, there are brands of muzzles that prevent most bites, but not all bites. So it's not, there's some options that are not quite as safe as a sleeve muzzle. Uh, improperly feeded sleeve muzzle, also the dog could bite though. So you have to really know a good deal about muzzle fitting. Uh, but if we're working on, for instance, muzzle acclimation, so I've got a client that's dog doesn't like his nails trimmed by anybody, right? Let's say we've got that case. And so our goal is, the, and the dog's bitten the client for nail trims and bitten the veterinarian trying to get nail trims or something like that. Then my argument is, okay, let's use the sleeve muzzle in the vet office because while the client's at home acclimating the Baskerville muzzle or whatever brand of muzzle you're using, we don't want to take that to the vet office and put it on for the first time or during the acclimation process because that dog's been like, this muzzle that. sucks everywhere, not just at home. Yes. It really is awful now because I had to wear it in the vet office. So I don't like to ruin the association in those particular cases. So I'm okay still using the sleeve muzzle because the sleeve muzzle is rich, doesn't allow the dog to eat, drink, yawn, vomit. It's for, I'm going to put this on for 30 seconds, do the procedure and take it off for safety reasons. So I'm okay in those contexts with that. Um, but that's really important. You should never, ever use a sleeve or vinyl muzzle for uh, when you're training dogs for long periods of time. So like if I'm going for walks with a dog that has issues with other dogs, I'm not going to use a sleeve muzzle because that's highly restrictive and the dog can't breathe <laughs> quite well. The dog can breathe, but not as much. They can't open mouth pants. So uh, those slots vinyl or slip-on muscles are not appropriate for those contexts. So as you can see, really depends on the context. It really depends on the history of the dog. And so that's why um, there's unfortunately no one straight answer for like a particular type of muscle because it depends, as they say. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. And I love that you brought up the conditioning too. So if they're trying to work on this at home and the client is doing the right thing by positively associating this muzzle right. for future use, yeah, not using it in the hospital even if it's the go-to to be nice to the dog in the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. It's because it's a lot easier to put those on too. It's just one, usually one quick clip, you know, so a Baskerville, yep. you got to like, fast. there's a clip. The newer models have a clip. Uh, a lot of other muzzles though, you've got to put the buckle on, you've got to put the top strap on. There's so there's a lot goes into it and that can be very stressful as you're doing that. Um, so sometimes it's the option is just one quick uh, procedure and then you're done. And the muzzle comes off really quickly. Yeah, easy enough, for sure. Yeah, definitely check out the Muzzle Up uh, project. I will put all the information as to how to access that website just in case anybody forgets it's listening to this in the in the show notes. 
so that they can use that resource. I, I absolutely love that. I think it's of such great value and it's really kind of turning around this idea, this ideology that we have behind muzzles, which is great. So yeah. um, before we go, is there anything else that you want to mention in regards to safe handling when it comes to aggressive dogs or approach uh, approaches, methodology, things like that that could potentially help veterinarians and veterinary staff in general? Yeah, I think, again, the, that body language component is so important. And most here's the interesting thing is that many of the veterinarians and groomers and people that work with, closely with dogs, so people that are like always hands-on with dogs, they're some of the best at actually reading certain things. Once they get experienced and they've maybe been bitten a couple times, they become very acutely aware of things that the dog might do. But it's still, there's those these micro signals. So you have like macro signals, growling, lunging, snarling. Most people can recognize those things. And then better handlers can start to recognize yawning, lip licking, head turning. But the really good seasoned handlers are going to be able to notice the micro signals the quick breath hold, the change in respiration rate, subtle change, a pupil dilation, slight change in pupil size. Um, these little things you start to notice, once you see that, you don't even get to the medium level signals and you completely avoid the top level signals or biting. You stay down in this low range. Then you're going to give yourself a, a, a lot more wiggle room to avoid bites. And you're going to keep the dog less stressed because you're adjusting what you're doing. Once you see those micro signals, you're like, oh, the dog didn't like that. So let me adjust. Maybe I'll change my position. Maybe I'll try cookies on this way. Maybe I'll lower the scale. Maybe I'll, you know, you can make these adjustments to see if the dog's going to be more comfortable. So I, you know, if I'm, as I mentioned earlier in the show, if I'm going to recommend one thing, it's reading body language. And then the next thing, of course, is practicing good defensive handling techniques. Um, you mentioned you had Sally Foot on. She's um, uh, got tons of good information about safe restraint in the veterinary office and doing things like safe handling. The late, great Dr. Sophia Yin, who Sally has yes. been greatly involved with, has a lot of great information on her site as well. Um, but from my side of the coin is more on the trainer side in terms of handling and the training aspect, but a lot, of course, applies much again depends on how you're handling the leash where you are in position with the dog you know and and the subtle things you know where your head is in position with the dog how your arm where your arms are in position all those things come with time but it's good to just start looking at those little details that can make such a big difference for your own safety because it's it can get it can get dangerous with some dogs if you're not careful in how you handle the dogs and then look at of course the office setup so body language handling skills an environment look at the environment for the dog if we can set the environment to be most comfortable for the dog that's going to make a big difference too so i know a lot of it's covered in in stuff like sally mentioned the fear-free movement as well you know how you set the scales just putting a yoga mat on a scale can be such a huge difference for a dog that's yeah. worried about a slippery surface the little details like that from a defensive handling standpoint a safety standpoint having tethers and back ties on the walls, things that if the dog tries to attack you, they can't physically get to you if you move out of range because the dog is tethered to something. Um, not to say they should be barking and lunging and trying to get to you on the tether. It's if you walk into the office and you do an exam and suddenly the dog tips over into aggression. If you just back away, the dog physically can't, physically can't keep coming after you. Um, so little details like that. And put it in a stud. Yeah. I've seen that mistake before. If you're going to affix them to the wall, put it in a stud. <laughs> yes. Sturdy tether. Sturdy tether. Um, yes. Yeah. Eye bolts, you know, steel eye bolt into a concrete wall That's is right. the preference. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen that mistake. I've seen an entire treatment table go forward before too. And I'm like, ah. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 So um, the one thing I want to mention too, you're, you're, you know, you're talking about kind of these handling skills and what to look for in body language. And I don't want people to be intimidated, especially if you're a newer veterinary assistant or nurse or even a veterinarian listening to this, like, I don't know this, I can't do this. Um, I just want to make it a reminder that a behavior professional or a training is part of the team. You know, it's part of your client's team. And so there's nothing wrong with bringing in a trainer or a behavior professional if your staff needs some additional handling skills or to learn from somebody that's been working with aggressive dogs in particular. I mean, that's why we have you on, Mike, right? You're a trainer and you work with aggressive dogs and we can learn so much from you. So don't hesitate to bring in, you know, a behavior professional or a trainer to the team to help the team learn some of these techniques 
directly in practice that can help them. I mean, anybody can learn these skills and what to look for and some of these subtle signals that you mentioned that could, you know, take an animal that might completely blow its lid and be over threshold to where you're starting to recognize some of those subtleties and you can alter the environment and therefore alter the dog's emotional state to where it never gets there. And I think that's so important just to see this from a team perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's, it's, you know, because we ask veterinarians and veterinary staff to wear many, many hats, right? You know, so, yes, so it's all, it's, you know, they, it's really helpful to have somebody that's, a, you know, specializes in a particular hat to just show them. Because, you know, it's, we ask them to be, you know, like if we were, if they were a general practitioner doctor, right? It's like we're asking them to be psychologists or psychiatrists at the same time as a neurologist, yeah. as a heart specialist, as an orthopedist, right? And so uh, I truly empathize with the veterinarians and, and I applaud them because they, they have so many different hats they have to juggle, especially if they're, they're a smaller practice. Now they have to be the accountant, the bookkeeper, and all this other stuff. And so, um, yeah. yeah, it can be really helpful to have so many come in and, and teach the team in a shorter time rather than having to research all that information yourself. Yeah. Mike, this has been so incredibly helpful. I think that anybody listening to this is going to get a lot of value out of it. If anyone listening wants to soak up more of your expertise and your knowledge, what do you have planned for 2021 as far as continuing education? Oh, quite a bit. <laughs> it really depends. <laughs> it really depends on the travel restrictions, you know, so I've been juggling all these yeah. different seminars and workshops and in terms of where I'm going to go um, later on in 2021. Uh, but right now everything's online, so aggressivedog.com is where everybody can find me. I have, a, I have links that go to all the webinars and seminars and workshops and conferences and anything else I'm putting on through that. The podcast as well is on there. Uh, people can find me on Facebook, uh, Michael Shikashio. It's easy to find. And on Instagram as well, mm -hmm. Michael Shikashio, also named, aptly named. Um, so yeah, if anybody's looking to get into the defensive handling aspect of it, we're also doing four online, uh, seminars this year. So every, all of those have moved online. They're all recorded as well. And we've got different time zones for the UK and Australia as well for anybody that's trying to get into some of the other <laughs> workshops that couldn't before. So, uh, those we're doing four sessions this year online for that. Wonderful. Yeah, and I can personally attest to um, the amount of information that comes out of those. I've taken several of your seminars and I've attended the Aggressive Dogs Conference, or Aggression and Dogs Conference rather, and it's, it's incredibly helpful to my own practice. And I think anybody that um, at least jumps in on one or two of those will find great value in it as well. So yeah, thanks so much for offering that. I, I really love that you focused in on this and you honed it on your skills because now we're all taking advantage of it and learning from your practice as well. Um, but thanks so much. And um, if you have any questions, feel free to pop those in the comment section below. If you're listening, you can shoot them in or hop over to the YouTube channel for continuing education and put your questions in below as well. If I can answer them, I will. If I can't, I might defer to Mike to help us out a little bit if I think his expertise will um, supersede mine for sure. And, and he can help kind of answer those if you don't mind keeping an eye out for him, Mike, and we'll, sure. we'll go from there. But thanks everyone for watching. I hope you enjoyed this session and Mike, all the best to you in 2021. Thanks for having me.